when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, the Huffington Post, in partnership with The Intercept, have published new information on our drone assassination program, gleaned from a trove of secret documents which include new details on how targets are selected and how well we do at hitting those targets. Joining us to talk about these revelations is The Intercept's Cora Courier. Meanwhile, the Democratic candidates for president have had their first primary debated season, and now that we've had time to sleep on it, we're going to confront our own conventional wisdom to see if the glib things we said the night of the contest still stand up in the clear light of the new morning. Who won the debate? Might have been someone who never appeared on the stage. And no, we are not talking about Joe Biden. Finally, the manufacturers of Miller and the makers of Budweiser have agreed, in principle, as they say, to a merger that would create the biggest beer company in the world. But is bigger best or even better? Oregon Representative Pete DeFazio joins us to roll out the barrel on behalf of America's small brewers. I'm Jason Lincolns with The Huffington Post's Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Elise Foley. And here's what happened first. And we're back. Uh, I'm joined now by two very good people, very decent people, true Americans. Uh, Elise Foley... Hello. Hey, say hi to people. Hello, everyone. Uh, and Arthur Delaney, who you know. Hi. Uh, we want to talk about uh, the debate that happened this week uh, with the Democrats, the first Democratic debate. Uh, and I feel it's good to actually get some more talk out about it after the fact, because when we're watching the debate in real time, we do tend to get caught up and caught along with the ebb and flow of the memes and talk and hot takes and it's good now we've had some space some time to sleep sober up a little bit we can maybe go back over some of the ground we talked about and see if we still think the things we think but i think arthur you're going to talk about something uh an opinion that has not changed since the debate ended yeah i don't know what you're saying that we needed to sleep and sober up i feel exactly the same way i feel i feel like the last time we went too easily along with the notion that carly fiorina won the debate and when we thought about what she did to win the debate which was basically just like be strong against donald trump uh uh an admirable thing she did that has no applicability to anything real americans are doing it was like kind of a synthetic win so Uh uh-huh so I think it's valuable to do this. Well, I, I immediately thought that Hillary Clinton was so poised and on message and just well-spoken that she quote-unquote won, and that also happened to be the conventional wisdom the next morning. But there is a question of whether the vast majority of Hillary Clinton or, or Bernie Sanders supporters were happier, and that's more difficult to sort out, but... The guy stumbled on a bunch of questions, and she didn't. So for that reason, I award the W 
to that, Hillary. He gets minus points. Yeah, he gets I that. Su- thing. I subtract points. I feel like I feel like there were there were definitely moments where Sanders' unwillingness or his particular yen for not doing traditional debate prep showed. Uh, there was one terrible moment where I think. Bernie Sanders just wasn't listening to what Jib Wen was saying. And so when Anderson Cooper said, we respond to that, he was just like, huh, what? What? I wasn't listening to Jim Webb. Like, like the rest of, of America. Topic. Right. Because what was the topic? Um, but, you know, Hillary Clinton wasn't by any means perfect last night. I, there were a number of occasions where I think that her answers may get over on people who haven't been paying attention to politics. I continue to be flabbergasted that she described Russia under Medvedev as a different era in Russian political history uh, then Putin, when she described the Russian reset as very successful when Dmitry was there, uh, and then when Vladimir came back, everything started going to shit. And I was like, no, no, they are one and the same. Uh, Medvedev was essentially, you know, is to Vladimir Putin as lamb chop is to Shari Lewis. There is there was no there was no honest to god practical situation in which Putin was not running the show at any time during that period of time. I thought that answer was too clever by half, but it probably did get over with Democratic partisans watching the debate, and especially Hillary partisans. They probably were just like, yeah, that's a great way of dodging that question, I guess. So I didn't I didn't think you know I'm I thought that you're right. From the standpoint of being poised, doing all those things to help the stoke perceptions among Beltway insiders, people don't pay attention to politics, at the real politics at street level. Uh, she probably did enough to quote unquote win, but I wasn't satisfied with her. I, I wouldn't call her, her debate performance satisfying on every single level. Either. Sure. She had many errors. You're right. I think the all those flaws are baked into what I am. <laughs> the conventional wisdom is saying no one's but- no one's that good. I thought that her answer, and I I think a lot of people like this, but about how uh, my judgment is fine. Look, Obama chose me to be secretary of state. So, bam, my judgment's great, even if I voted for the war. I thought that that was kind of of weird. Like, I I don't know that that entirely proves everything just because, well, Obama is cool with me, so you should be cool with me, too. I thought that that was kind of a strange one. But Twitter, everybody was like, yeah. It was designed to Killed be it. an applause line that deflected attention from whatever she was supposed to be saying. She had a few instances where she's like, I associate myself with Obama. For instance, on the Black Lives Matter question, she's like, I think President Obama has provided great moral leadership. So I think that was a strategy of hers to uh, like break glass, get out of trouble. I think yeah, I, w- I, th- I guess so. I think I will say this. the in- um, you know The differences and distinctions between... Bernie Sanders and uh, Hillary Clinton are at least interesting ones. It's a lot different than, you know, a bunch of guys in a room, you know, talking about whether or not Jews in in Germany are assholes for not defending themselves against the Nazis. Um, It's a real debate between two different parts of the Democratic Party, one that's ambitious and wants, you know, perhaps some kind of political revolution and one that is more incrementalist and believes that the system is more or less working the right way. It just needs some help to function better. Uh, And that's a real good debate. Um, And I think that we could definitely have more debates between Bernie and and Hillary and get a lot out of it. But what about the other three people? It would be nice if we just had (laughs) debates between them and then more time for asking them more and, like, you know, following up with them more and said, you know, okay, now let's go to Jim Webb and see what he thinks. Everybody can tune out again. 
Well, that's part of the reason I thought Hillary seemed so good because Jim Webb and especially Lincoln Chafee were so bad. Jim Webb was constantly complaining about not getting enough time. If the main thing people remember about you, or one of the main things, is that you complained about time, that's You're, not terrible. a good debate for you. And and Lincoln Chafee had this epic response to a question about legislation undoing Glass-Steagall's <laughs> investment and this commercial banking separation. And he was like, well, it was my first vote in the Senate, and my dad had just died. And it was an overwhelming vote. You know, my vote wouldn't have mattered because it was 92 to 5. I think we actually have that clip. Governor Chafee, you've attacked Secretary Clinton for being too close to Wall Street banks. In 1999, you voted for the very bill that made banks bigger. Uh, the Glass-Steagall was my very first vote. I just arrived. My dad had died in office. I was appointed to the office. It was my are very you saying, first vote. Are you saying you didn't know what you were voting for? I just arrived the Senate. Uh, I think we'd get some takeovers. And that was one. It was my very first vote, and it was 95 92.5, it was the, the record. With, with all due respect, let me though, just sir, say, what does that say about you, that you're casting a vote for something you weren't really sure about? I think you're being a little rough. I just arrived at the United States Senate. I'd been mayor of my city. My dad had died. I'd been appointed by the governor. It was the first vote, and it was 90 to 5. See, I wasn't lying. No, yeah, it was see, actually even worse. We verified. Uh, we verified uh, Arthur's reporting. Uh, yeah, it was crazy. I was I was describing it as like, well, gosh, you know, my grandmother died, and uh, it was a hard first day of work uh, for me, and I'm sorry if if uh, my vote didn't show up. And it's like, you know, you talk about his big, his only argument as being a guy we're talking to is the fact that he was a Republican who stood up against the Iraq War. He said, I did my homework. Right? Yeah. Well, that one time, great. Congratulations. You got an A on that one assignment. And then I guess you thought that was going to carry you through this. People turned out to be more interested in what you did outside of that vote. Oh, too bad. And I feel terrible that his father died. I do think one of the things that Hillary Clinton's uh, overall mien uh, sort of demonstrated with those three were some rickety crickets up there on stage. Jim Webb. Uh, beyond complaining about the time, he didn't demonstrate that he's been awake or alive in the past eight years. He had all these kind of obscure points of passion that didn't make any sense. Uh, the the one moment that I guess everyone's talking about today was was his, you know, I killed a guy thing. Uh, and Arthur, you were pointing out that, that uh, conservatives on Twitter have decided that this is the hill they want to die on defending Jim Webb. They're saying, how dare you denigrate a war hero for fondly remembering his heroism for which he received the Navy Cross? How dare you, liberals? But if you go back and listen to it, it was profoundly awkward. Yeah, it's it's not the fact that he did what he did. It's the fact that he just said it and then smiled silently in a really slow way. I mean, it was just the way he said it was creepy. And the question was, like, what enemies have you made? In, right. po- in politics. Yeah, in politics. Right? Obviously, not really in politics. The con- right. The context was in politics. Not You can't be like, my ex-boyfriend hates me. Yeah. <laughs> That's it my was- main enemy. Whom have you killed? <laughs> it would be a better Next question. Debate. Did you, did anybody else kill anybody up here on stage? Anyone want to respond to that? We're not saying he shouldn't have thrown the grenade in the bunker. That was great. Arthur's <laughs> was, smiling. So it was just a strange, a very strange moment in a debate that I had never seen anything quite like it. But I, I also thought Jim Webb uh, said some good things. It, it, he was 
he sort of comes off. I agree. Like he hasn't been around for a while, but I feel bad for him. He's he's simultaneously trying to appeal to a type of Democratic voter that is no longer really part of the coalition of uh, voters that Democrats are trying to win yeah, the presidency with. These blue collar, working class white people who want to hear a nuanced position on the Confederate flag and aren't into Black Lives Matter. What's interesting, though, and he pointed this out last night, is that he did, he was a uh, very early adopter of the notion that we got to do criminal justice reform. He was all for it back in 2008, way before it became this big thing that it is now. Uh, but you probably, it's hard to get past this other stuff he what's sort tough, of panders with. What's tough to reconcile is that he was an early adopter of a lot of um, positions that have become recently focused, most no- notably economic populism. But his sort of rallying cry when he jumped into the ra- this race in the first place was, my party's moved too far to the left and I've got to bring it back. And I was, and I stood there confused thinking, no, no, your party is now where you want it to be. Your economic populist Jim Webb, your military adventurous skeptic Jim Webb, your uh, let's let's limit mass incarceration Jim Webb. And I've, I talked to a lot of the people who, well, not a lot, but I talked to a, new, a number of people who uh, supported Jim Webb right out of the gate and worked on his campaigns. And some of them said, I don't recognize this dude from the guy I supported for for Senate race. That is the thing that I've found hard to reconcile. This should be he should be entering this race thinking now I'm in the catbird seat. My party's listening to the stuff I most want. But he seems to think his party's abandoned him again. And it's like that's the shtick again, because he ran as a Democrat in the first place, saying the Republican Party abandoned him. This constantly being adrift. For for all the, those occasions, and there were some last night where Jim Webb could speak in complete paragraphs of, about important topics, the sense that he's completely adrift really shows. You know how who I don't know if we've mentioned yet? Who? Martin O'Malley. Yeah, I don't know if we've mentioned not, him yet at all. I'm not sure what to say, to uh, be let honest. Let me check with the he producers. Did fine, I think. Our producers are saying that we haven't mentioned Martin O'Malley yet, which is, I guess, problematic for... Yeah, maybe I feel like good. that's something. Maybe it's good for Martin O'Malley. He was the tallest person on stage. Neither won nor lost. Yeah. You know, he's kind of like the Stoke City of... <laughs> yeah, I, I thought he did a, a serviceable job. He did okay. He had some, you know, he said all the stuff he's, he always says. Is he, is he vice presidential or cabinet secretary material? There's a mm. sense, there's a sense that he's kind of caught betwixt and between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton because he wants to, produ- he wants to present himself as a practical governor because he was governor of, of Maryland, like Hillary Clinton, someone who got things done. At the same, same time, he wants to present himself as a true progressive champion. And I think that maybe he only has a few feet in both puddles. Uh, well, that's a really terrible, that's a really shitty metaphor. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to yeah. retract that immediately. There's a, sense, there's a sense that he's not progressed too far in either direction. Uh, and I think it shows in his very sort of like whispery, weak um, claims of conviction that just showed up in the, in, in the debate last night. It was almost like he wanted to believe the things he was saying about himself, but didn't. Yeah, one one of the things with him um, on immigration, especially, and we didn't see that that this that much last night, is that Hillary Clinton will say something that's that's pretty liberal on immigration, and everybody will applaud it, and then he'll be very quick to say, "Well, I felt that way first. 
I don't know how impressed people necessarily are with all the I, I felt that way first arguments. Um, I get the the argument against Clinton for you know taking these positions to be politically expedient. I, I understand how that fits in, but. I think that in general, people are like, well, great. Hillary agrees with us. We're happy, at least on on immigration to some degree. So uh, a lot of his stuff, I think, is is that way. And I just don't know. I don't I, know yeah, that's that was winning. similar dynamic with Glass-Steagall, where he was wanted to jump on the, the idea that we shouldn't have undone that, which is really something Bernie Sanders is more known for. And it's, I agree. It sounded sort of like me, too. Yeah. Don't forget. <laughs> I'm also I'm also here. I also feel that way. Well, uh, you know, I think maybe in the next debate we will shed some of the dead wood and get down to the uh, interesting debate that I think is potentially possible between Bernie and Hillary. We'll see how that goes. Thank you guys for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. Oh yes, I like unison. You. Yeah, that's very creepy. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Everybody, welcome back. I'm Jason Lincolns, joined right now by Zach Carter. Hello. This week, the intercepts Jeremy Scahill and Cora Courier and Ryan Devereaux and a whole team of reporters for that for that uh, organization released a trove of documents pertaining to the United States secret drone program. This information, leaked to the intercept by a confidential source, exposes new details on how targets were selected for assassination, how good the underlying intelligence was 
and what the government does when the people we kill weren't actually the people that deserve to be killed. The Huffington Post is partnering with The Intercept and publishing this material, and joining us now to talk about this in greater depth is Cora Courier for The Intercept. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. So this is a very complicated story. What, just as an overview, what did we learn from these classified documents? Well, these documents represent the Pentagon's internal assessment of how the drone program was working in Yemen and Somalia in 2011 and 2012, a period when the program ramped up massively and there were a huge huge increase in drone strikes going after um, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and al-Shabaab and others thought to be affiliated with those groups um, in Yemen and Somalia. So this is the, an, an internal Pentagon assessment of how that campaign was going, how the military's uh, Joint Special Operations Command was carrying out uh, surveillance and on targets and um, ultimately killing them, usually by drone strikes, also um, by other kinds of airstrikes. So some of the top things that we learned from this document are that the Pentagon itself was concerned about the quality of the intelligence that it was using to make these kills. Uh, They were overly reliant on what's called signals intelligence, which is intelligence picked up from cell phones, from uh, communications, basically any kind of electronic communication. Um, And they felt that they had a severe lack of human intelligence, intelligence from the ground, sources on the ground that could tell them whether the phone they were looking at actually belonged to the person they they wanted to target. So that was one of the most striking takeaways from it. Uh, it also maps out this um, architecture of drone bases around the Horn of Africa. Um, this has been reported about, but it's really stark to see it on them, these maps, the internal Pentagon maps, again, showing how how much surveillance and um, and not large numbers of troops, but how much American presence there is in that region. Well, so, uh, you know, the, the, the drone strikes uh, are, are conducted by in parallel programs, one conducted by the CIA, one by what's called the Joint Special Operations Command. It's a explicitly military operation. Um, did, did you learn anything about about that arrangement? I mean, about about how wh- whether that that in itself seems to be uh, operating functionally? Yeah, well, these documents come from a really interesting period um, when the pre- before 2011, it had just been the military, just JSOC running programs in Yemen and Somalia, uh, running strikes in, in Yemen and Somalia. Around mid-2011, the CIA, which had been handling strikes in Pakistan, was brought in to start also conducting drone strikes in Pakistan. So the documents that we have are looking um, are about the military's program, uh, but it's an interesting period because there was a lot of infighting going on uh, within the administration about whether or not the CIA or the military were better at finding people and killing people. Um, and this, in some of our sources looking at these these documents, were like, yeah, yeah, this is a what's known as a wine brief or a mm. uh, you know something that the military is basically saying. Look, we can do this just as well as the CIA, but uh, you know we don't have as many resources. We got used to having huge a huge troop presence in Afghanistan and a huge amount of resources, a huge amount of surveillance equipment, drones, other kinds of surveillance flights, and uh, we can't do that in Yemen and Somalia because we don't have uh, the resources we want. So it's been previously stated by the administration, reported in the media, that President Obama himself 
he signs off on each individual strike, particularly in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, but judging from the information that you guys went over, that doesn't exactly seem to be the case. So could you tell us more about the nuts and bolts process regarding the chain of command that leads from uh, dredging up a target to ultimately ordering the target's assassination? And, and, and is, there, is there enough accountability in this process? Well, there's a fascinating slide that's included in this in this Pentagon study, which shows the how the military sends targets up to um, up the chain of the command to approve them for lethal strikes. And they start again. This is the military's process. They call them. Um, they they package the information like sort of the intelligence that's collected on somebody, somebody who might be uh, potentially um, judged to be a target. Uh, they call it a baseball card. So they package this information on a baseball card. The baseball card gets sent from the task force, the military task force that's training, um, that's tracking him up through the regional military command to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to the Secretary of Defense. And then it's taken to this inner circle of the National Security Council that's uh, known as the Deputy, the Deputies Committee and the Principals Committee. And these are top advisors. This is John Brennan at the time, um, was John Brennan, uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, these are these are the president's basically top national security advisors. And they look over these cases and they represent the interagency views on whether these, this person actually presents enough of a threat to be killed. And then eventually the president signs off on a 60-day authorization uh, to kill that person. So, so when the president I guess, says that he signed off on strikes, it's more that he signed off on people. So uh, the, the principles committee part of this seems kind of weird to me. Uh, how, how does this, this is you look at the names of the people who are included, it's people like Jeff Zients, who's the OMB director, uh, you know, the, the treasury secretary. Um, what, how, how did that, those people, they seem like strange people to be making assassination decisions. Uh, how do they, how does that, that committee work? Well, you know, I think by the letter of um, the law, you know, the, the Principals Committee of the National Security Council is outlined as including uh, some 17 officials, right, including the Secretary of Energy, mm-hmm. uh, including the Director of the Office of, you know, the, the OMB, right? They're probably not the ones actually signing off on, on drone strikes, rec- making detailed recommendations about who and who isn't an affiliate of al-Shabaab. Um, but... Formally, they are all part of the Principals Committee, and uh, the idea is that by having this interagency process in the White House, you're representing the views of uh, the entire government on these mm-hmm. very significant strikes. But in practice, it's not going to be, um, yeah, it's not going to be the Treasury. It's going to be State Hillary Clinton representing, you know, the State Department's views on it, uh, perhaps. Um, James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, representing the intelligence community's views on this, and they're going to hash it out. And you know, almost every account points to the influence of John Brennan, who is now the CIA director and was the counterterrorism advisor. She, that's now that role is now played by Lisa Monaco, um, and they'd be the ones that would really take the recommendations to the president and. and uh, be the, the real people who influence his decisions. Let's talk a little bit about the external aspect of the approval process. According to the process you guys have documented, drone strikes uh, according require the specific approval of various stakeholders to be carried out, not just the people in our own government. They also include the approval of 
uh, some high-ranking official from the host nation in which the strike is to be carried out. Uh, now, supposedly, without their tacit approval, the drone strike is not supposed to happen. There's a hard stop on it. But this is not what's happening in Yemen, is it? It's highly doubtful. Um, I mean, first of all, there is no real functioning government in Yemen right now. So um, the United States is probably not calling up the uh, Houthi rebel leaders and asking them, you know, hey, how do you feel about this? Um, But even when we had a strong ally like Hadi as president of Yemen, um, you know, the how much influence they really had over strikes is, is questionable. And if the U.S. really wanted to go after someone, if it was really, if they felt that they really posed a threat and it was something they wanted to do, they probably would just go over and above them. I mean, we had a foreign minister from Somalia say, which similarly is not a particularly strong central government, um, say that he hoped the U.S. would respect their sovereignty if they disputed a strike. But, you know, he, he didn't know of an example. So, so I mean, you know, President Obama announced this week that the, the war in Afghanistan, at least the U.S. troop presence, is going to continue through the end of 2017. What what do these drone strikes taking place in Yemen and Somalia just have, have to do with, with the war in Afghanistan? Are, are these things that are, are seen as part of the same operational mission in some way, or are these just, just sort of independent wars that are going on? Well, there are huge lessons to be drawn from the documents that we published today for uh, the future of Afghanistan. Well, among the stories, we, we have this study on, on Yemen and Somalia. We also have a series of documents about a campaign in Afghanistan called Operation Haymaker, which was going after specific, um, it, it in many ways functioned like a counterterrorism campaign. It was going after specific people, what they call high-value targets. Um, and it was modeled on, you know, these campaigns are, are, are considered similar, these counterterrorism campaigns going after high-value targets. Mm-hmm. So, and that, we had really detailed statistics from that campaign in Afghanistan, and it was, they found that in, in nine out of ten cases, they didn't kill the intended target of their, of the strike wow. or raid or action. Um, and this is a place in Afghanistan where we have 14 years worth of intelligence. We have a massive troop presence, um, and if we have low success rates and we're killing people who may not be actual threats to the United States or even to troops, um, my colleague Ryan Devereaux goes into detail on one case of a guy who had, you know, actually been fighting the Taliban before the U.S. Um, came invaded Afghanistan, and then he was eventually killed by the U.S. and um, after having become an insurgent. So, you know, w- when we look at this, the legacy of Afghanistan, the future with a smaller troop presence looks a lot more like somewhere like Yemen and Somalia, where you have much less ground intelligence, many fewer troops to carry out night raids, which have less casualties than than airstrikes. Um, And the two are, you know, they're they're different contexts, but they they hold lessons for each other. Um, So last question. I'm sorry to say that this is the last question because I could could talk a long time about this, but Andrew Coburn, who who authored the book Kill Chain, which is about the drone program, and in an interview with William Arkin, of Ga- then of Gawker, he said that the appeal of the drone program for our leaders is that they create this opportunity for war without an evident national sacrifice. Coburn says, with no national sacrifice, there's no need to pay attention what, to what ordinary people think. 
What would you say ordinary Americans are sacrificing with this drone program, uh, which seems to have so many holes and where the intelligence that we've gathered doesn't match up to the hype of the technology? I think one of the goals of publishing this story was that we wanted to put this program back into the into focus. Um, there was a lot of attention to it a few years ago, and it's kind of fallen off, but it's continuing. We're still striking people in Yemen. Uh, we are going to move probably to a, a similar model in Afghanistan with fewer troops. And this is a war, whether or not people visualize it as soldiers on the ground, and it's going to have, you know, it's a war that's being carried out with very little public debate, and it's going to have consequences. There are, there's the blowback factor in terms of, you know, the people on the, the ground in those countries know that the, the that drones are dropping bombs, even if the American people don't. Um, it can inspire recruits to new causes. And then there's a kind of strategic question from a military standpoint, even if you don't object to the use of force in these places, which is, are we just killing because it seems like there's no better option? Are we just hitting these people at kind of at, at almost at random? And, and uh, even if they're not very great people, what's the overall strategy here? Where does it end? Um, when you look at Syria now and Iraq, are we just going to continue this, uh, this new normal of just regularly carrying out targeted assassinations? Hey guys, it's Jason. I'm back with my friends. Arthur Delaney is here. Hey. And <laughs> we're all doing our Martin O'Malley imitations. Zach Carter is here. I'm here. That was my Bernie Sanders impression. Pretty Sorry. decent, pretty decent. Okay, so... Oligarchy. So we're going <laughs> to... Billionaires and billionaires. We've, we've already talked a little about the debate. We're going to drill down a little bit deeper, but let's just start. I'm going to ask a question, and I want both of you to respond in unison to my question. Who won last night's debate? Hillary Clinton. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Arthur and I are going to war. Okay, so that's, that's pretty interesting. Can I just say, for the record, for myself, I'm going to be the asshole who sticks out the middle ground. I'll say probably there's maybe something more worth talking about in the middle between who won. I actually, I actually think that's the smart way. Well, okay, well, here, debate, what, what is a debate? Um, it's everyone getting up on stage and arguing over policy... Mm-hmm. And their records and their and their ideas. Yep, that's what a debate is, Arthur. Hillary Clinton it. was far and away the best 
person talking on that stage. Except she kept t- she t- kept reminding everybody that she has uh, a, a record that Democratic voters don't actually like, and you can see that in the in the voter responses. I mean, Hillary Clinton did a great job dealing with a record that Democrats don't actually like. She pivoted really well away from Iraq. It was really smooth and really suave. She actually did a really good job fighting Bernie Sanders on his Wall Street reform package, which is much stronger than hers. <coughs> but everybody saw Hillary Clinton has this this background and this history that Democratic voters don't actually like. And no Democratic voters outside of Washington, D.C. really know who Bernie Sanders is. And so as a result of last night's debate, they're like, oh, my goodness, Bernie Sanders, interesting guy. I like him. And you can see that. In the, in the pundit response, which is that Hillary Clinton won, and the polling response, the instant re- responses, whether they're from Fusion or from CNN or from Frank Luntz even, I'm gonna, saying that Bernie Sanders won the debate. Those are back Zach up briefly, only briefly, Arthur, don't worry, with a point that I'll make. Uh, I found that yesterday uh, when, when Bernie Sanders uh, w- was engaged in a topic of capitalism, he specifically noted that he did not care for what he called casino capitalism. A lot of people noted that he said this in a casino. Uh, and he spoke to the <laughs> fact that that Wall Street uh, had, had adopted uh, essentially a business model that was based on fraud, arguably correct, uh, and that he wanted a capitalism that was fairer for everyone, it wasn't just this unproductive part, a sector of the economy raking in money uh, and not uh, spreading it through productive activity through the common wheel. And I would say that probably most people that I've seen that 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 sort of like exist in that sort of, I don't really listen to the, the world beyond the beltway, uh, like the people who edit The Hill, Chris Saliza, they they all came out with, with takes today that were all like, oh, he'll never be president because he's against capitalism. There was no appreciation for the fact that he never actually said he was against capitalism. There is this sort of notion that the socialism he uh, represents is some kind of dyed-in-the-wool um, Marxist can't. Uh, and I think that what Zach is saying is correct. I think a lot of people probably tuned in Bernie Sanders for the first time last night. They probably came in and hearing was like, oh, this guy's a socialist. I'd be interested to hear what he has to say. I'll probably not like it. And then when he explained himself pretty cogently, I think a lot of people were just like, oh, well, that's not so bad. That's not the fearful thing I've been hearing about Bernie Sanders this whole time. Second coming of Lenin. I, uh, now we know that's off the table now. We know that's not There will be no Sanders about. purge. Yeah, I think that probably... Probably the extent to which uh, Sanders is different on capitalism from the rest of the Washington establishment or the American tradition is that he's not neoliberal in his uh, approach no, to there's capitalism. A lot of, a lot of, I, well, go ahead, Arthur. I think We've been beating this is you. not. This doesn't get to my point yet. But oh, I, I'm sorry, I, we I, failed to get to your point I, yet. I mean, I'm going to now say something that doesn't uh, bolster my argument that I thought Hillary won. It's that. But it, actually, yes, it does, because Bernie Sanders makes this a lot more confusing than it needs to be when he calls himself a democratic socialist. And then he's confronted with this question from Anderson Cooper. Are you a capitalist? Are you a socialist? What's the deal? And then he proceeds to say, well, yeah, you know, we got to look at like Norway and Sweden. It's like, no, 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 no. Slow down. You, people need to understand how much socialism we already have in the United States of America. And I wish Bernie Sanders would just say, look. I'm, I love Social Security. Social Security is a is a little bit of socialism that makes everyone's life better. And a lot and, of security. <laughs> and, and everyone really likes it. Yeah, because it gives you security, but most importantly, economic freedom. Um, so I think Sanders, by insisting that he call himself a, a democratic socialist, 
and giving this confusing answer about uh, these Northern European countries really makes it confusing. And even if I'll concede maybe the, the polls de- won't bear this out, but I don't think it helps voters understand what he's getting at. I'll readily concede that the invocation of Denmark and Sweden, though, as a as a uh, as a someone who, who descended from Swedes, I'm. I'm always proud to hear Sweden mentioned. Yeah, Viking okay. motherfucker. Those seem like great uh, countries. Like I, I will concede that that <laughs> did muddy the waters. But this, I don't think this is an issue of of of, of Sanders' uh, political ideology being something that mutters the waters. I think here's it's the his relative right. newbiness in, in the world of presidential debating that led him to say those and, things. And, and also a brand that he's had for a long time, where he's somebody who is outside of the Democratic political establishment, who can call bullshit on the Democratic Party and just vote like a true Democrat. Democrat all the time. If you look at his voting record, he just looks like a pretty hardcore Democrat on everything except guns, where he got really slapped around last night. That was the other reason I thought I I could not agree that he won the debate, because guns are just an incredibly salient issue right now, after we've had several mass shootings that were incredibly high-profile news events, and... Sanders' position okay. on guns was totally unclear. I'll give you guns, Arthur. I'll give but you I'm going to take now. I'm going to bolster Arthur momentarily. Sorry, Zach. Oh my God. Uh, see how fair. <laughs> see how goddamn fair I am. Fucking Anderson uh, Cooper in here. So I will take issue with your contention that that uh, Sanders said things that all Democratic voters like. I think that you should be able to concede the fact that the Democratic base is not monolithic, and there are people who would fa- fall into what uh, what someone like Chris Hayes would call institutionalists, and people who would fall into what Hayes would call uh, revolutionaries, in, in that in that there are people, Democrats, dying the world Democrats, members of the Democratic base, who think that government as it stands right now, the way it works, the way it serves people, may not be the best, but we can tweak the institution to fix it. And then there are people who believe that the sins of this institution are so great that we've got to tear it right the hell down and build it back up from the rafters. And I think that's the essential difference between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And so I don't think I don't think that necessarily but I don't think necessarily Bernie Sanders cultivated the love think, of every I, Democrat I, out there. I, I think Chris there are plenty of Democrats who are going to say, false, no, our though. institutions are fine. I, I think that's a false dichotomy, though, because the, the types of I mean, to me, the Sanders candidacy has its it's salience because, I mean, let, let, let's be clear here. People love Bernie Sanders because they want to love Elizabeth Warren, right? Bernie Sanders is the stand-in candidate for Elizabeth Warren. And I, th- I felt like she was really the candidate who won the debate more, more than anybody on the table last night or, or, or at the lectern last night. Uh, because, because you could see absolutely everybody tacking to the Elizabeth Warren position on when, whenever it came to economic policy. And I think economic policy is the issue that most invigorates the Democratic base right now. The same way it's actually, I think, the issue that most inv- invigorates the Republican base because something happened in 2008 that Washington pundits haven't come around to understanding yet. Something happened in 2008 that really broke people's faith in institutions. That doesn't necessarily mean that people want to tear down every institution in Washington, but it does mean they want to they want to rethink the relationship between those institutions. Um, and Bernie Sanders was the only person on the stage who was speaking clearly and forcefully to that to that sort of idea. But you said everyone just moved in that direction. What, what do you mean? You, you, you said that, yes, okay, I can see that. Bernie. He's saying that Bernie Sanders was authentically occupying oh, that okay. position. Fair enough. And Hillary and the rest Clinton. Were forced in that space. And, uh, and Hillary Clinton did uh, sort of try to get there, you know, but this, it, begets, it gets so obscure, I think, for most people who aren't familiar with, like, Chain CPI and Glass-Steagall, that yep. the fact that Hillary Clinton 
might not be, it might be kind of pandering there, isn't really going to matter. But again, maybe the polls won't show this, but that was an instance where Hillary Clinton seemed to be confused or papering over her record on economic issues where she's been much more of a, a centrist and in favor of banks. That was the weird moment where she sort of punted and said, well, you know what? Climate change. I've been good on that. And she said, Social Security, you know, like, do you support expanding Social Security, which Bernie Sanders has been incredibly clear. She says she wants to enhance it. Which doesn't, yeah, enhance, strengthen. These are Washington buzzwords that really don't mean anything. They, uh, and, and, and what about expanding it? She was really pressed on this by Anderson Cooper and she was like yeah for uh, for widows I think that if Hillary Clinton <laughs> oh, well, widows wait, isn't that oh, what I, isn't that what social security is I for think, like that's, can that, I just say I think it, that if Hillary Clinton was to give an honest answer to that she would say Bernie Sanders wants to expand social security uh, in an arena in which he'll never get the votes to do so I want to be a bulwark against the Republicans attempt to dismantle social security I think that's the choice the real choice and I think that but she, note that well, she couldn't say that no she that's what no, that is no that is what she said I would be a bulwark against Republican efforts to destroy it. that actually is what she said at the end yes she did but she says it in a way that people who do follow this closely who are Democratic activists who probably love Bernie Sanders the most know does not preclude her support Supporting things that they would consider cuts to Social Security that centrist uh, politicians in Washington don't, such as reducing cost of living increases, which is, you know, a phantom cut to benefits that the the political establishment thinks would be great. And and, and that Mitch McConnell is actually actively trying to push uh, Barack Obama into doing by this holding the, the debt ceiling hostage this week. Right. Yeah. right so uh, her answer did not. She did not go there. She wouldn't. She was not willing to say. I won't let that happen because she 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 probably would be happy to let it happen and knows no one really knows what they're talking about in that. Yeah. So I guess, but but I felt like this happened a couple of times. There there was there was the social security answer. There was there was a a a, a, a sort of three way tete a tete between Sanders, Clinton, and Martin O'Malley on too big to fail in banking, in which Clinton said that her her banking policy was tougher than Sanders, and Sanders kind of shrugged it off and laughed and said, "Well, that's not true." That was one of his best moments, by the way. Yeah. And, and and I mean he would he was just right like she 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 isn't t- taking on institutional financial power uh, and she's pretending that she is and and pretending that it's tougher and for and what it's worth it's institutional financial power has been kind of public and saying yeah we know Hillary Clinton's got to say this but we, we understand she's not done really mean a word of it yeah I mean I I wrote a story on her plan where we we quoted some Wall Street analysts saying like yeah we we think Hillary Clinton would be pretty pretty good to Wall Street um and then TPP where she said uh the the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership this trade deal where she said you know, when I was in when I was secretary of state, this looked like a great deal. And I had I had high hopes for it. But now it looks like it's not good. So I so I oppose it. Well, you know, you talk to most people who are smart about TPP and been following it for a long time. It pretty much came out the way they expected it to. So either she was really bad at TPP forecasting two or three years ago, or that was a political move and a political dodge that, that she made. And I think that came across. And I, I think I think, uh, you know, people might not understand the policy issues on Glass-Steagall or on breaking up the banks or on TVP individually. But there was, I think, a uh, a level of just straightforwardness from Bernie Sanders that came across that, that Clinton did not have, um, which is not to say that Clinton didn't feel compelled to, to move to, to the Sanders position. I don't think she was moving to the Sanders position. I think she was moving to the Elizabeth Warren position because that is I think that is actually the person who is leading the party. Well, that, on these issues that right whole now. part of the debate was kind of hard to follow. It, I, it was strange how Martin O'Malley was he was sort of an interloper talking about Glass-Steagall that really was a fight between 
Bernie and Hillary. But the big thing that was easiest to understand has got to be the paid leave. And even though Bernie Sanders has been the most forceful proponent of that in politics right now, she was the most forceful in that debate. And she, I, and, she did and, come off very strongly on that. That's true. I think that maybe uh, maybe one thing we can all agree on is that maybe the winner last night is this kind of title poll that Elizabeth Warren has had on the party. She's maybe not ready to run for president, but it seems like if you're running for president, you got to be ready to deal with everything Elizabeth Warren has brought to the party. I think that's the case. And our listeners are also the winner. Thanks, <laughs> listeners. You win. You win, <laughs> listeners. Uh, we will be... Arthur and I will make up. It'll be okay, guys. Yeah, this is all great fun. <laughs> okay, we're going to go off stage now to hit each other the head with bricks. Hey, guys. We'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. To thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. And we're back. You know, this week, uh, we uh, have had the opportunity to contemplate a merger of giants like Sauron and Saruman. In this case... We're talking about Miller and Budweiser, two gigantic beer brands that are now looking to form one gigantic beer brand to rule them all. Joining us to talk about why this is bad for America and everyone living in America uh, is Democratic uh, Representative Pete DeFazio from Oregon. And if, uh, pr- forgive me if I get this wrong, but you are the founding member of the Small Brewers Caucus in Congress. Is that not correct? Uh, that's correct. And, of course, uh, these two companies are everything that is antithetical to our uh, craft brewers caucus. So is your, is your uh, opposition to the merger based on the, on, on the economics here, or does it have more to do with the fact that these companies are really famous for making uh, what we all know is basically cheap, shitty beer? <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, if you take uh, two uh, huge companies that make bad beer and put them together, you got one really, really huge company that makes really bad uh, beer. No, it's more insidious than that. Actually, um, they are uh, beginning to buy up and have bought up a number of uh, craft brewers, uh, and now they are going to the next level, which is buying up distributors. So uh, what we're looking at here is that uh, they could begin to vertically dominate markets and actually exclude uh, legitimate uh, smaller craft brewers from the distribution uh, stream. Uh, you know, distribution varies state to state in terms of how it's regulated or not regulated. And, uh, you know, this is something justice is going to have to look at very, very closely. I mean, I would imagine they're going to make them shed uh, Miller Coors, uh, because they would be way too large, over 50% of the U.S. market. 
And secondly, I would hope justice would rule that they cannot own uh, distributors, uh, because, again, uh, then they could begin to use uh, their market power, their dominance, their purchasing power, buy up a few more uh, good craft brewers, uh, favor them, and uh, try and exclude the others from the market. I, I, there's a sense in which, you know, if you are a fan of cheap, shitty beer, as I am, I actually like bad beer. I prefer it to, to this fancy pants craft beer business. Uh, this, there, there are prices. <laughs> <laughs> hey, nobody's perfect. Uh, you, you know, uh, there's, there's a sense in which this puts the pricing pressure in the, in, in the wrong direction for the consumer. Um, by Not only can, can they exercise market power against other competitors, keep different flavors of beer from, uh, from seeing consumers, uh, but they can actually just, you know, with, with less competition, you can, you can raise prices. So your crappy Miller beer uh, can get more expensive. Uh, I, I think one thing that's kind of crazy about this merger you mentioned that they might that the uh, the acquired company it's called SAB Miller it's a big international conglomerate they could sell off the Miller brand itself as part of because it's it's actually manufactured through this uh, this this merger uh, uh, not merger it's a it's a joint venture called Molson Coors but if they sell that off they sell it to Molson Coors so you still have Miller and Coors and Molson all in one giant behemoth as as sort of the uh, the consolation prize for antitrust warriors um, is is this is this ref- I mean to me this reflects a broader trend in uh, in. In, in corporate governance over the last few years, um, do you do you think the Justice Department has any like viable options available to protect consumers and allow this deal to uh, to, to proceed? Well, I mean, you're right. Uh, for those of you uh, who prefer uh, this sort of beer, uh, there is very likely to be uh, upward pressure uh, on prices. Uh, you know. Uh, you know, the scenario you just sketched out would give them a little less pricing power. It would still be a heck of a lot of pricing power. But remember, um, you are, uh, you know, part of, uh, I don't know what I want to say, a dying breed, but, you know, the beer market is pretty, <laughs> pretty flat, uh, except for the growth, and all the growth is in craft beers. Heck, I can go into a lager bar in, uh, uh, rural Oregon now, and uh, very likely I'm going to find uh, at least uh, one or two tabs of uh, of good beer there, uh, non Miller, Coors, Bud, etc. So um, you know, America is uh, developing uh, you know good beer taste, and uh, uh, these folks are on the decline, which is part of why they're making these big moves. Uh, they know they're losing out. Uh, to the more innovative uh, craft brews uh, in, a, in a market that overall isn't growing. I, I think I perhaps drink uh, a more wider variety of beer than Zach, and uh, <laughs> I, I think I would say that I would say that my experience in the in in the past few years dovetails what you're talking about. I walk into restaurants and I got I, I get a much wider range of choices, and I also uh, encounter more and more people who work at restaurants, work at bars, who can speak pretty fluently about what you're buying, what you're purchasing. Uh, so to me, there's been sort of a real uptick in consumer choice and consumer information. Describe for me what the world in which the Miller Budweiser behemoth comes into existence. What's that like for consumers at street level, ordinary Americans who, who maybe aren't completely opposed to uh to to, to 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 moving past swill every once in a while. Well, I, again, I mean, I think they're going to see the the prices uh, jacked up, and and that's not fair uh, to see that uh, see that happen to them. I mean, uh, being dominated, and, and remember, uh, they, every beer they drink adds to America's trade deficit. Uh, 
Uh, that's one of the great things about drinking uh, craft beer is you're helping uh, deal with our trade deficit. Uh, American-made, uh, American product, uh, American, you know, homegrown, uh, as opposed to all these other beers, which are now foreign-owned, and you're contributing to our trade deficit every time you drink one. Wait a minute. So through all the deficit hysteria I've had to listen to over the past, I don't know how many years, all we need to do to really solve the problem is keep drinking good American craft beer? <laughs> well, uh, there are a few other problems, like the Trans-Pacific partnership or our other failed trade agreements and a few other things. But hey, you know, I just like to think every night when I go home and I crack a good craft beer, I've done my little bit for the day, maybe twice or, you know, that's good. a bad day, three times to help with the trade deficit. The people who run the can kicks back ought to just hand out cans of good beer to people. Well, so what do you do in, this, in the small brewers caucus in, in Congress? I mean, uh, are, are, there, are there issues other than, uh, than, than complaining about big, giant corporate mergers uh, that uh, the oh, craft yeah. beer manufacturers are, are watching for, at the government level? Oh yeah, uh, there's. I mean, I'll, there's one I, uh, that was uh, pretty good last year, uh, which was the Food Safety Modernization Act uh, excluded alcohol, except uh, it included cattle feed. So most brewers, including the big guys, give away their spent grains or, or sell them at a very modest price to uh, farmers who feed them to very happy cows or pigs. And uh, the uh, FDA, in its wisdom, said, oh, wait a minute, you're now a food handling facility. You're going to have to dry that stuff, label it, package it, and you're going to have to get a license for food handling. And we're like, whoa. And that would have meant basically hundreds of thousands of tons of spent grain going to landfills. So uh, we got very actively involved in uh, educating the FDA. Finally, I got the head guy who's head of the rulemaking to come to a craft brewery. Uh, and uh, see, actually, uh, craft breweries uh, breweries are more sterile than food handling facilities. Uh, and uh, we got uh, we got this misguided rule changed. Uh, that was a pretty big deal. Uh, labeling is an ongoing problem. Trademarks are ongoing issues and conflicts. I mean, there's some pretty serious stuff. But then a few times a year we get together and we uh, drink good beer. It's probably the last bipartisan thing left in Washington D.C. <laughs> Four co-chairs, two Republicans, two Democrats. You know, uh, you mentioned labeling there. I think one of the things that's confusing to people about these uh, these types of mega mergers, you know, everybody's familiar with Budweiser. Everybody's familiar with Miller. At least everybody who drinks alcohol in the United States is. Uh, but I don't think people really recognize how many brands these behemoths actually operate. So InBev has not only Budweiser, but still Artois and Hogarden and Michelob Ultra. Um, you know, do you think this uh, this this, pro- this this sort of um, this I guess marketing strategy where where you keep instead of having everything like you know when you fly an airline everybody else, when there's an airline merger there's always like one branded airline do you think people would make different choices if they could see clearly on on the labels that they were buying you know basically the Budweiser company brand when it you know that, that looks like a craft beer but is actually you know just coming from Budweiser. Well, for years, I'm on the Aviation Committee. We fought uh, to make uh, the commuter carriers. I mean, it used to be you get on United, and you get on, then you get on this little prop plane that says United, and you go, really? And uh, <laughs> so we fought to say, no, you've got to disclose that that's actually not really you. That's United Express operated by, uh, say, SkyWest. Uh, it took years uh, to get that done. Uh, and in the beer industry, we don't have that. I mean, there are things out there that people think are craft beers or they have no idea uh they like a blue moon what's that oh boy that's not well blue moon is budweiser 
Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, who knew that? You know. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, there's a lot of things like that that you know. So that's part of it. I mean, you know, hey, these are smart business people, uh, and so they, you know, they they're engaging in various uh, ways to get people to buy their product, and you know, some of it involves. Uh, actual mark, you know, attempts to control the market, which we talked about earlier, and others are ways to, you know, make something taste just a little bit different, slap a different label on it, and develop uh, people who, you know, go for that brand. Okay, I have one last question for you. You brew your own beer. You're obviously very knowledgeable about craft beers and how it's made. I find that one of the great benefits of craft beer is that when people work intimately with ingredients uh, like craft beer makers do, they can bring out the, the sort of notes and tastes of a season. But I have to ask tastes you... Tastes like a chocolate unicorn, right? Right. <laughs> but I have to ask you, uh, Congressman, will you agree to reject and denounce pumpkin spice beer in all its forms? Today? <laughs> Not a fan. Yes. <laughs> yes! So we're agreed there, at least. <laughs> this has been the world's most perfect interview. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Congressman DeFazio, thank you very much. And where can people follow the Congressional Small Brewers Caucus? Oh, uh, the, we have our own uh, uh, website. You can go to house.gov and find us uh, through there. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, uh, we will be right. Enjoy your fancy pants beer, Congressman. <laughs> <laughs> I'll enjoy it with you, Congressman. Thank you for right. being on. And we Hard will... to find what you want to drink here in uh, in Eugene Springfield, let me tell you. I'd have to search around for the place, sir. But... <laughs> So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Adriana Ucero and Peter James Callahan with technical assistance from Christine Canetta and spiritual guidance from Caitlin Bolguki, our block of granite. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by The Intercept's Cora Courier, Oregon Representative Pete DeFazio, and Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Elise Foley. So That Happened is available on iTunes at itunes.com slash so that happened. Check us out in the iTunes store. And while you're there, look for the Huffington Post's whole family of podcasts. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at huffingtonpost.com. As always, thanks for listening. We miss you already. <laughs>